Well, it's been a few weeks, but welcome to another edition of This Week in Government Enforcement. As always, I'm Jerome Thomas, joined by my co-host, Tom Firestone. Um, Tom's going to start us out today, but before we get going, I quick want to start today's discussion with a quote from Fast Times at Ridgemont High, uh, at Ridgemont High from eminent political and legal scholar and historian Jeff Spicoli to his U.S. history teacher, Mr. Hand, about the founding of the United States. Mr. Spicoli said, quote, so what Jefferson was saying was, hey, we left this England place because it was bogus. So if we don't get a set of cool rules ourselves pronto, we'll just be bogus too. Get it? How's that for a tease, guys? Uh, I'm going to tie this in later to something that I promise is related to the, the legal and particular compliance white collar industry. But before we do that, uh, I'm going to uh, hand it over to Tom. Tom's going to talk about uh, this week, the White House statement on anti-corruption and national security. He's going to talk about sanctions um, in both Bulgaria or on um, both Bulgaria and Belarus. And then he's going to talk about the Western Balkans executive order. And then I'm going to bring us home talking about the volley over the past couple of weeks relating to ESG between commissioners, uh, SEC commissioners, Allison Heron Lee and a lot Roisman. And that's sort of to spoil it a little bit. That is where I'm going to tie in the Spicoli Jefferson uh, reference. So without further ado, Tom, why don't you uh, take us away? Thanks, Jerome. I think we can all agree that Sean Penn went on to a lot, to a lot of great things in his career, but nothing will ever match his performance as Spicoli in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. We're dating ourselves, but uh, <laughs> that's, our, that's our youth. Um, on to more serious subjects. As Jerome said, I'm going to talk about the White House statement from June 3rd announcing a new strategy viewing, which views anti-corruption as a core U.S. national security interest. And what I like about this, uh, this um, White House statement is it really ties together corruption and national security. We're so used to seeing corruption, talking about corruption as an economic problem, um, ensuring a fair market, ensuring fair competition, all of which, of course, is true. But what that misses is the element of corruption, the connection between corruption and national security which is quite palpable and important, but less noticed. For example, corruption, as we know, is corrupt regimes are tend to be aggressive because they create foreign enemies and foreign wars in order to divert the attention of the population from their own corruption. Corruption in the army can make a country very vulnerable to foreign invasion. Um, other forms of corruption can make a country vulnerable to foreign influence people, government officials selling information to hostile foreign governments to give them access to computer networks. Um, it can also make a country vulnerable to terrorist attacks, selling information about access to sensitive um, objects like airplanes. So I think that this is long overdue, and I think the Biden administration has really put its finger on something very important here. Now, what does this uh, statement, this executive order actually do? Well, it directs um, a 200-day interagency review that will culminate in a report and rec recommendation addressing the question of how the US government and its partners can better combat corruption, viewing it again from the perspective of national security. And it's really um, focused on five main elements. Um, the first one is resources, and it directs the uh, government, the recipients of this message, to think about new structures and staffing and to improve intelligence collection analysis and think about what resources they need to effectively combat corruption, both at home and abroad. A second element, element of the strategy is 
illicit finance, combating illicit finance through improving transparency, um, beneficial ownership requirements so that it's more difficult for bad actors to hide um, criminal proceeds behind shell companies. Um, another element of it focuses on holding foreign corrupt actors accountable for their acts, um, going after their wealth, designating them under the Global Magnitsky Act, um, strengthening the Department of Justice Kleptocracy Asset Recovery Initiative, which is focused on recovering the assets, uh, recovering stolen assets. A fourth element is uh, improved cooperation with international partners. And a fifth element is using foreign assistance more to try to strengthen the rule of law and combat corruption internationally. So those are the those are the main elements of it. Now, anyone who follows these issues will immediately think that a lot of this is already being done. We talked about the FY21 National Defense Authorization Act a couple of times on previous shows, and a lot of this is already in there. That contains the Corporate Transparency Act, which creates a national register of beneficial owners of, um, of companies that are registered in the United States. It also um, includes the Kleptocracy Asset Recovery Rewards Act, which provides for rewards, whistleblower awards for those who provide information about stolen assets. It also has a um, new Treasury liaison program, which is designed to improve cooperation between the Department of Treasury and foreign financial intelligence units. Um, the government has, the Department of Justice has been bringing criminal charges against foreign kleptocrats. Last year, we saw the charges against um, Maduro and many of his circle in Venezuela. We also saw money laundering charges against Gulnara Karimova, the president of the daughter-in-law of the former president of Uzbekistan. So a lot of this is already being done. And I'd say that the strategy really tries to accelerate and improve the processes that are already in place. But given that so much of it's already being done, that raises the question of what is the strategy going to look like? What is this memorandum going to have in it that is new and not already being done? I think uh, a few things come to mind. First of all, I think we're going to see more individual sanctions based on corruption, and I'll give some examples of that in a second. I think there's a likelihood that the there'll be a recommendation to extend the kind of KYC requirements that already exist under the Bank Secrecy Act to other kinds of businesses beyond financial institution institutions. The NDAA um, extends them to antiquities dealers. I think there'll be a recommendation to extend them to art dealers, possibly real estate agents, and other kinds of businesses. And there'll be a recommendation to further strengthen FARA enforcement, which is designed on combating to combat pernicious foreign influence in um, the United States. There may be a recommendation to criminalize foreign bribe receiving. There is a bill in Congress right now the Foreign Extortion Prevention Act, which would cover the receipt side of foreign bribery, in addition to the um, active bribery of the FCPA, bribe receiving by foreign government officials, as well as bribe giving by companies subject to the FCPA. Um, another possibility is there'll be a recommendation to create a criminal statute explicitly criminalizing collusion with the foreign government to influence US politics. As we all remember, this was one of the issues that came up in the Mueller investigation. He was essentially investigating collusion, which is not technically a crime under US law. And so these may be some of the things that we'll see coming, um, coming out of this report, but it would be out in 200 days. We will certainly report back on it then and what it means for government enforcement. Now, as I mentioned, I think the Biden administration is already moving in this direction. I wanted to talk about a, uh, 
three sets of measures that they took recently, one with respect to Bulgaria, um, second, Belarus, and third, with the, regard to the Western Balkans generally. On June 2nd, the, um, uh, the government designated um, uh, three Bulgarian, perhaps politically exposed persons, Vasil Boykov, Delian Payevsky, and Ilko Zhilyazkov, and 64 entities connected with them under the Global Magnitsky Act. I think this is significant. This is the most significant one-day designation under the Global Magnitsky Act, the most sweeping single set of designations under the Global Magnitsky Act. And the designations were based largely on corruption by these, um, by these PEPs. It's also significant because I don't think we've seen such sweeping Global Magnitsky sanctions with respect to an EU country um, either. We've seen them individually. There were um, uh, sanctions of a couple of PEPs in Turkey, which is not in the EU, but a NATO country a couple of years ago, which were then lifted. But I don't think we've seen every, anything so clearly directed at um, politically exposed persons within an EU country before. And I think that the, the sanctions are already having their desired effect. Just um, yesterday, the interim prime minister of Bulgaria, Stefan Yanov, gave a very strong speech against corruption in which he said, we have to protect state-owned companies from financial sanctions which are being imposed. Um, we have to prevent bank transactions with the designated individuals so that businesses and state-owned companies are not also blocked. So the message seems to be getting through and to be having a push effect on local governments, getting them to also implement corruption measures to prevent future U.S. sanctions um, against, uh, against corruption in their countries. And of course, that's exactly what, it's, what they're designed to do. So that's Bulgaria. Um, we also talked in previous show about Belarus and the, um, the hijacking of the Ryanair jet over Belarus airspace, which was carrying the Belarusian opposition figure, Roman Pratasevich. Um, in response to that, the, uh, the government announced that it was going to reimpose blocking sanctions against nine Belarus state-owned enterprises, which had previously been granted uh, general licenses by the Treasury Department. The government also announced that it's developing a list of targeted sanctions against key members of the Lukashenko regime who are associated with ongoing human rights abuses and corruption, as well as falsification of the um, 2020 election results. The most interesting part of the White House announcement about what it was doing in response to Belarus is a line which reads, the Department of Justice, including the FBI, is working closely on this matter with our European counterparts. Now, what is the Department of Justice, what is the FBI going to do in this? They bring criminal charges, generally. So are there criminal charges that could come out of the Ryanair hijacking? And the answer, I think, is possibly yes. There is a U.S. criminal statute, 49 U.S.C. 46502, that criminalizes air piracy. And that statute applies extraterritorially if the plane that is the victim of the hijacking contains U.S. citizens. And in this case, I've been informed that there were three U.S. citizens with dual U.S. Lithuanian nationality on the Ryanair jet. So this raises the question, can Mr. Lukashenko himself be criminally charged with air piracy by the United States? The answer is possibly. Of course, he would claim head of state immunity, but head of state immunity does not apply to a head of state whom the U.S. government does not recognize as the legitimate head of state. And this was, of course, the basis on which Maduro was charged last year. Now, 
in August of last year at the height of the disputed elections in Belarus, the State Department issued a statement saying the United States cannot consider Alexander Lukashenko the legitimately elected leader of Belarus. So the question is, does this leave him open to criminal charges by the US government by an administration which has committed itself to taking aggressive, bold, new, innovative steps against foreign corrupt actors? We'll have to see. Um, the third thing that I want to talk about briefly is um, yesterday on June 8th, President Biden issued an executive order uh, entitled Blocking Property and Suspending Entry into the United States of Persons Contributing to the Destabilizing Situation in the Western Balkans. Now, this updates previous executive orders on the Western Balkans. What's interesting about it is it expands sanctions designation criteria specifically to include undermining democratic processes and engaging in corruption, um, something we hadn't seen before. Now, this just gives the president uh, the power to make designations. We're not, it's not yet clear who will be designated. But again, in all three of these acts, Belarus, Bulgaria, and the Western Balkans, we see the Biden administration joining anti-corruption and national security exactly as set out in that White House statement. So I think this is a new trend that we're going to see more of and it behooves all of us in the um, enforcement space to follow foreign politics and to look at the interaction between corruption and sanctions, because this is going to present a challenge for US businesses operating abroad in high-risk markets. With that, I'll turn it back to you, Jerome. You're on mute. Thank you, Tom. So <laughs> at the beginning, I... Uh... I, uh, of the episode here, I quoted Jeff Spicoli. Um, and over the past few weeks, we've had a back and forth between two SEC commissioners, uh, Commissioner Lee and Commissioner uh, Roisman, that very much reminds me of this quote, which frankly is one of my favorite quotes about US uh, history ever. Um, it's largely correct and it's in. However, it also oversimplifies a very complex question and also might not be 100% correct since Jefferson authored the Declaration of Independence and not the Constitution. And it's the Constitution which set forth those rules. Still, directionally, it makes a point. So what's the tie-in here? Well, like I said, over the last few weeks, Commissioner Lee and Commissioner Roisman have been going back and forth around this concept of materiality and um, what the limits are on SEC rulemaking and what the advisability is on SEC rulemaking regarding ESG disclosures. So a few weeks ago, Commissioner Lee gave a speech which um, she titled, um, uh, Living in the Material World, Myths and Misconceptions About Materiality. Again, this 80s theme sort of uh, arises again. Uh, it was focused on ESG. Um, her obvious goal was here was to debunk a couple of myths regarding materiality and ESG in a way that I believe was intended to support a more comprehensive set of SEC rules um, around ESG disclosure. She started out by saying that from a policy perspective, it's unfailingly simple. It makes perfect sense. Those with the money are the ones who decide how to spend it. And the clear co correlate to that point, she said, was that investors are also the ones who decide what information they need to make those choices. And uh, she said that was backed up by Supreme Court precedent, um, which said that it was a reasonable investor and that's how materiality was, uh, is governed and materiality is designed. Reasonable information uh, or information that a reasonable investor would use to make his or her investment decisions. So she went on then to 
debunk a couple of myths. One, and the first myth that she tried to debunk was uh, that uh, ESG matters and indeed all matters material to investors are, are already required to be disclosed under the securities laws. She said, look, we frequently hear that climate and ESG disclosure requirements are unnecessary because there is already an existing disclosure regime in place that requires the disclosure of all, and she emphasized all material information. Um, she just went on to say that's not correct. Um, she said public company disclosure is not automatically triggered by the occurrence or existence of a material fact. In fact, there's no requirement under securities laws to reveal all material information. She said rather disclosure is only required when a specific duty to disclose exists. And in fact, that's an accurate statement of the law. Um, and so this sort of begs the question, what are the possible sources of a duty to disclose? She said, look, a duty to disclose may arise by virtue of an explicit SEC disclosure requirement, such as those set forth in Regulation SK. A duty may also arise um, where uh, it needs to be made in order to make statements previously made by the company materially accurate or not misleading. Um, uh, she used an example of political spending by corporations and said, look, um, corporations do a lot of uh, political spending and political contributions. And um, certainly their shareholders would want to know that, um, but there's no express requirement on public companies to disclose political contributions in their SEC filings. And as a result, very few of them actually do. Um, and she used that uh, as, a, as a corollary point to ESG disclosure saying, while um, investors might like to know about ESG disclosures in the absence of a specific requirement to disclose certain requirements, the companies are not required specifically to make certain requirements. We'll get to that point later on in kind of what I will call uh, Commissioner Roisman's rebuttal, but it's an interesting one. She then went on to say myth two is where there's a duty to disclose climate and ESG matters, we can be rest assured that such disclosures are being made. Um, she sort of talked around this a little bit, but ultimately said, and I think this is her the punchline of her speech, lawyers, auditors, and managers can and do get the determination of materiality wrong. And while our, again, the, the connection or the hook to enforcement here, while enforcement stands ready to act whenever material information required to be disclosed is improperly withheld, these types of cases can be very difficult to police since the omitted information will often not be known to the public or to the SEC. Um, she then went on, and I think this is sort of where this is going, and really this is going to be, I think, the conflict point as we move forward. S Myth number three is SEC disclosure requirements must be strictly limited to material information. Um, she said, quote, this is affirmative what the law requires, and thus not how the SEC has in fact approached disclosure rulemaking. Um, she cited specific provisions in the, the uh, Securities Act and the Exchange Act, Section 7 of the Securities Act and Sections 12, 13, and 50 of the Securities Exchange Act um, that um, provide for rulemaking, um, including the SEC's rulemaking authority for periodic reporting in Sections 12, 13, and 15 that are actually not tied to materiality. And Tom, if you think about it, right, the internal controls and the books and records requirements in section 13 and, and the rules under the, the books and records and internal controls requirements, there is no materiality uh, concept or provision in there. So you know, certainly what, what she is saying is 100% correct. 
Um, she says the materiality arises under rules 10b5 and 14a9, where it really limits how much information must be provided in the context of anti-fraud provisions violations. She said, look, Regulation SK from at the outset is required periodic reports to include information that's important to investors, but may or may not be material in every respect to every company making the disclosure. Um, for example, related party transactions, environmental proceedings, share repurchases, and executive compensation are all required, uh, disclosures are all required to be made under, um, uh, under federal securities laws, even though they actually don't have um, and, and they may not be material to a particular company. And so what she is doing here is sort of laying the groundwork for saying, look, a, a generic or a general disclosure requirement around ESG matters for public companies. A, um, there is no specific mandated set of disclosures around this. Um, B, companies are not necessarily making these disclosures. And even if they are thinking about it, they, they may be making materiality decisions improperly. Um, they said, look, uh, we can actually require disclosures. We, the SEC, can require disclosures on things that aren't actually material to every single company. Um, sort of laying the groundwork um, in support. She's obviously a supporter of, uh, of sort of comprehensive uh, ESG disclosures. Um, then on June 3rd, the, the counterpoint, right? Um, uh, which was Commissioner Roisman. And, and he says, he starts out, look, I feel like a broken record. Our disclosure framework already requires public companies to provide information um, that is material to investors, including information one might categorize as E, S, or G. He then went on to say, the commission has already explicitly interpreted our rules to require disclosure of material effects of climate change on a business. He then cited the SEC's 2010 interpretive guidance on climate change. He said, we also amended Reg SK last year to require disclosures regarding human capital to the extent that other material risks to a company can be categorized as E, S, or G. I don't see a legal justification for failing to disclose that information under the existing rules. Um, but he said, look, I think that I think that uh, ships already left port or that horse is already out of the barn. He said the SEC chairs made it clear that further ESG disclosures is an area that the agency will, will pursue. So he wanted to go on record with a couple of uh, points or notions that he think he thinks really need to be thought of as we move forward. First of all, he said, look, in terms of ES and that's environmental, um, social and governance, G is the governance. In terms of the precise items of ESG and that information which investors are not getting that may be material to making informed investment decisions, we actually need to know what those are, right? If we're going to require public companies to make disclosures, um, ESG is incredibly broad, um, and no one has yet defined what those are. Um, and so, so coming back to kind of that um, that interaction between um, Mr. Hand and, and you know Jeff Spicoli, I think what we have here is is both sides are actually correct, right? What Jeff Spicoli said about why America left uh, or, or or revolted in 1776 and why they set up a constitution, you can't at the core argue with that. But the problem is it's, it's a devilishly complicated issue that requires a lot of nuance of, well, what exactly were the core issues for us leaving the, 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 um, yeah, the, the you know, for revolting in 1776? And in here, what, what is the E, what is the S, and what is the G? Because if you're going to, under penalty of sanction from enforcement, if you're going to require disclosures, you actually got to actually specifically identify what those things that are E, 
And what I will tell you is that nothing I've seen in these speeches uh, or, or sort of the, 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 the discussion, at least so far, has identified what ESNG are. They're more at the groundwork of saying, we can do this. Um, and yeah, I think you can do it. You can implement rules that are uh, important or, or necessary for the protection of investors. That's not the question. The question is how you're gonna go about that. And is it wise to do it? And if so, how you're going to do it. Um, then he really gets into what I think is the crux of the issue. He says, it seems that some of the interest, particularly in ENS disclosures, is not what risks environmental or social factors pose to the company, but rather what risks the company poses, for example, to the climate. To the extent that the interest is in understanding the risks the company poses to the climate, what makes the SEC the appropriate federal government agency to require those disclosures, as opposed to, for example, the Environmental Protection Agency? Um, again, what I said here is I don't think that what Commissioner Lee is saying is at all wrong or controversial. Um, but but I think we, we you know we we still have this sort of passing of two ships in the night, right? The SEC can and likely will pass regulations requiring more defined ESG disclosures. Um, how you go about defining what is ESNG is, is something that Commissioner Royceman is saying. Look, you actually better be precise because if you're going to require this under penalty of enforcement, you need to actually give public companies rules of the road as to what they're going to require. But I think um, what, what no one is talking about is, well, what the heck is this going to be about? Is it going to be about how ESG trends impact the company, its bottom line, the, the dollars and cents, right, the, the, the income statement? Clearly, that's something that I think is far more fair game from a disclosure standpoint than um, what is the impact of the company and its operations on the environment. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think that's very hard to quantify. I think that's very hard to know. Um, I, I also don't know, going back to sort of uh, Commissioner Lee's statement right at the beginning of her speech, which it's what investors care about. Um, you know, I, 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 you know I, I think reasonable investors take different views on how they go about making investments. Some make investments based on purely ethical or ESG determinations and won't touch a company that emits fossil fuels at all. I know people like that. My friends, certain of my friends invest like that. I also know people who will invest in a company that has a good PE ratio, uh, even if it emits fossil fuels or is a major contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. I'm not saying what's right and what's wrong. What I am saying is there is a clear divide in who the reasonable investor is and what is important to the reasonable investor. And uh, none of that is, is, is really clear. And I do wish that Commissioner Royceman would have sort of tease that out some more, because that, yeah, that's one point that Commissioner Lee's speech, um, I, I think purposely, or maybe not, maybe not purposely, just chose not to address, because it is the most complicated issue in this debate, which is how do we go about defining what is material and material to whom, right? Um, the, the goal here is to have a set of disclosures, I think, right? If, you, if I get inside, if I get inside the, the commission's head, um, in the majority of the commission, what they're looking to do is have a set of rules for ESG disclosures that are consistent with global standards, right? Those, those say in, in the European Union or those emerging in the European Union. Well, it's this concept of dual materiality where you have to disclose stuff that's material not only to 
investors, but also has, you know, this other concept. There's a sort of a materiality to non-investor stakeholders, and that's the public, that's the environment, that that, that is the sort of the, 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 the sort of the international and the global community as a whole. And this concept of dual materiality is one that frankly is very foreign. As I said this before, it's very foreign to sort of our notion of U.S. securities laws disclosures. We typically look at what is this, what 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 is relevant to the operations of the business and the the, the finances of the business and the income statement, the balance sheet of the business. But we don't necessarily look to the interests of non-stakeholders when determining materiality. Um, and I, I you know, so there is a again I use the sort of round peg square hole notion a lot, but I we're, we're, you know, there is going to be an inevitable conflict between how you determine materiality and whose mind you get into when you're determining what is material to an investment decision. And again, this, this is going to, I think, it, it's, it's going to find its way through a rulemaking, but I also think we're going to see investigations, enforcement investigations about it, right? The SEC isn't talking all about this so that they can just do rulemaking. There is ultimately going to be enforcement action on this, and so that's why we're talking about it, you know, so our, you know, so our viewers can get ahead of this. We're we're not, we're not covering everything in this broadcast right here, but we're trying to kind of break it down and make it simple so that, you know, if you're wondering what the heck is going on, you at least have a good taste of what's going on and you can go to the speeches. So um, I guess with that, I will, uh, I will end my, uh, my discussion of, of the volley back and forth. I hope you got the, uh, the Spicoli reference because I, I, I think it's, it's to me when I read these two speeches, I'm like, this reminds me of Mr. Hand and Mr. Spicoli. And again, it's one of my favorite historical quotes ever, but I just thought there was a lot of consistency between the two. Next time you'll do risky business in an American werewolf in London, probably. Um, Perhaps I will. This is really interesting because it seems like one of the benefits of this, there's so much discussion of ESG today in the business world, but it's not really specific. What are we talking about? And it sounds like the whole SEC disclosure requirement because it has to be specific in order to be meaningful, to give notice to companies what they have to disclose will force everyone to concretize this discussion, which I think is a, is a positive thing. So it seems like the system is working, um, maybe not, Exactly as it was intended, but it's having beneficial effects. This whole focus on disclosure is forcing people to be specific about a very important concept, and that's a good thing. Look, I, look, I, I think this is how the, the American rulemaking and regulatory system works, right? Smoke out, smoke out the inconsistencies, and, 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 and try to find a set of rules that are actually manageable, right? Not one side gets everything that they want, right, Tom? I think, like having having a disclosure requirement that requires companies to disclose what their policies and practices are to limit methane or, or, or CO2 emissions or greenhouse gas emissions, um, or, or to otherwise foster uh, diversity, for example, diversity of whatever nature. I think those types of where it's identifiable and specific, give me your policies, give me your practices, what are you doing to do X, Y, and Z? I think that those are far more achievable than what is your impact on this in the economy, right? Because you have you have causation issues, you have proximate direct. It's impossible to know, and so you know. To me, I think these are things that no one's really talking about yet. See them crystallizing as we have this kind of volley back and forth between Roisman and Lee. Well, that's a good thing. That's a good thing for the the debate and the discussion yeah. around the SG. All right. Well, Tom, great job. It's fun to be back. I'm, I'm glad we're back after a couple of weeks. We'll uh, 
We'll, 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 we'll talk next week. And I'm actually going through a trial right now, a criminal securities fraud trial right now. I'm going to talk a little bit about some of my observations, some of the things I've been seeing, some of the judges' rulings that I think folks out there might want to know. Kind of, I've been observing. It'll be really interesting. I'll bring you in, Tom, since you're the criminal pro. You're not, you're not the defendant. You're going through the trial. In fairness, yes, I should. I, I have to say I'm not the defender. I'll be on trial right now. But, but I, you know, my, yeah, I, I, have a, I have a client who's a witness in, in the trial, so I've been attending and participating. And there have been a number of interesting rulings, um, specifically on uh, internal controls and books and records, revenue recognition type issues that I think we can talk about. And certainly you can have input um, on them, Tom, because they're, they're you know, evidentiary rulings on what's admissible uh, in, you know, for purposes of establishing what patterns and practices would be for revenue recognition. So we'll talk about that next week once I'm done with all this. I, I'm on a one-day hiatus and I go back on Friday, okay? Thanks, Jerome. Look forward to it. Take care, guys. And with that, week. we leave.